want to introduce uh, my good friend and ministry colleague. Kevin is a carpenter by trade. He met Jesus later in life. What would it be, 17 years ago or so, Kevin? Something like that? That uh, Kevin met Jesus and has become a student of God's Word. And, um, and he loves Jesus and he loves the church. And, uh, and uh, we love you. And so grateful for your ministry here this morning. Uh, please open scripture for us, Kevin. Thank you, Terry. Can you hear me? There we go. Um, well, good morning, church, both uh, virtual and personal. And uh, welcome to friends and to visitors. Um, today, uh, before us, we have an unusual story, um, fitting perhaps for the unusual times that we find ourselves in. Our text today is from the book of Numbers, and though much maligned as a boring book, our reading today is actually quite shocking, and if we're honest, probably offensive to many of our sensibilities. Our text today is a dramatic episode in God's project of redeeming a people for himself, a people to be called after his own name. Now, I'd like to offer that our text today is truly a comforting text and a source of great hope and security, but only after we pass through much that is truly ugly. And it's as we pass through these troubling events that we're forced to rethink some of our more sanitized or sentimental understandings of God and come to terms with the true ugliness underpinning much of the work of salvation, including the ugliness of Christ on the cross. In short, we're joining with the journey of the wilderness generation, perhaps through the ugliness both of their victories and struggles, and the ugliness of their Savior, can we gain new appreciation for the salvation which we hold dear. Why don't you join with me in a word of prayer? Lord, we remember Adam, our first father, the first son of God who was unfaithful to your covenant, we remember his failure to expel the serpent from your holy garden. We remember his affliction, having been bitten by the serpent's venom. The affliction of sin and death is our inheritance in him. Lord, we remember your people Israel, your second son, who broke your covenant time and again as you sought to form in him an obedient spirit who would chase away the serpent from the second garden where you sought to dwell with Israel in peace. And Lord, we remember Jesus, the second Adam, your only begotten Son. We thank you, Lord, for sending him, he who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might look upon him and live. We thank you for the second Adam, the promised seed, who has crushed the head of the serpent, even as he has healed us of our mortal wound. Lord, may you make the hearing of your word profitable to us this day by your spirit and lead us into all truth and encouragement by your goodness and for your glory. Amen. So uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 1. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. 
Thus the name of that place was called Hormah. Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so many of the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And when it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. And this is the word of the Lord. Um, This is a story of the end of the wilderness generation. The end of that generation who preferred to die in the wilderness rather than to trust in the promise of life with God in Canaan. After all the trouble, rebellion, and slander of that generation, after nearly 40 years of futility, we are jumping into the middle of the story of Israel, the firstborn son of God seeking his first taste of holy war. Throughout the book of Numbers, we find the phrase, the sons of Israel. It appears nearly 200 times. It's synonymous with other phrases in the book, such as the people of Israel or the congregation of Israel. But here in this text, it's Israel, the people, presented as one man speaking to God. Here we find a hint, not of the sons of Israel, but of Israel, the son, the Israel of God. It is as God declared to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is my son, my firstborn, let my son go that he may serve me. So in verses 1 to 3 of Numbers 21, Israel the son speaks. Israel the son vows. Israel the son serves. Israel the son dedicates. He fights. He fulfills. Israel the son is victorious. But it's at this point in the narrative that many of us begin to stumble and balk at the notion that God would hand over Arad to Israel so that Israel, in total dedication, could hand Arad over to God in total destruction. That this work was part of God's mission and his covenants is troubling to us. And I join you in this discomfort. After all, what separates me in any way from Arad? What is it that I have done to deserve God's blessing rather than receive his curse? Relatedly, we might ask, what had Israel done to deserve God's blessing rather than his curse? And why were they chosen for possession of this land? By chapter 21 in the book of Numbers, Israel has almost been purged of that wicked generation who preferred preferred death to life. And even Aaron and Miriam had already perished, leaving their brother Moses behind. This prepared and purged nation now readied itself for its destiny. Israel the son sought the divine sanction from the father to go about his father's business to pursue the promised inheritance by clearing the land of evil. Now, this skirmish is not the conquest. 
This is not the great mobilization of the armies of Israel, which would occur under Joshua after the death of Moses. But it is a war fought against a king who reigned over a wicked nation, who dared to raise his hand against Israel, the Son of God. Yes, Israel was a nation of individuals, but they are presented here as speaking and acting as a man with one voice against a wicked nation standing in the way of the inheritance that their father had sworn to give them. In this passage, Israel has been wounded by the king of Arad. Some men were captured, and Arad has decided to go out against these invaders. Israel makes a claim upon the promised inheritance to God by appealing to the promised mode of possessing it. They seek divine judgment on Arad, and their vindication as sons through Arad's total destruction. Even Arad's cities and every stronghold would be torn down. No trace would remain. But even though in this instance, Israel is pictured here as upright and righteous, seeking vindication, we need to be reminded, even as Moses reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 9, verse 5-7, that Israel was not a righteous nation. It is not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess the land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Know then, it's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So this war then is not a question of racism or ethnic cleansing. This is no mere tribal war. It's a war without model or human precedent. It's a divine action against a wicked and corrupt nation who had stubbornly refused to respond to the grace they'd been given and repent from their wickedness since the days when Abram had sojourned there some 430 years before. But this is also a war of the covenant. It is a war of God's promise. This is both an interesting and troubling notion. Arad was destroyed because of their wickedness, but also, and more importantly, Deuteronomy 9.5 teaches us that Arad was destroyed to actually confirm or to establish the oath that God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Arad was not dispossessed. They were not destroyed by a more righteous nation, but on account of a righteous promise. It was the covenant God swore with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that moved the Lord to act upon Arad and to bless Israel with a righteous victory. If we take this notion seriously, we must admit that Arad was not destroyed merely to bless Israel for the sake of the patriarchs but to bless the entire world according to the promise, ourselves included. After all, the promise, the oath sworn by God to Abraham, is the, is the promise sworn to Abraham's seed. The son who would one day come through the line of Israel, the seed was to be planted and established in Canaan, the promised seed, in whom and through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. There was much blood mixed into that soil, plowed under with violence. Yet it was in this way that the ground was prepared and cultivated for the coming of Christ. 
It was here in the soil of Canaan where this seed was planted and watered. Like a grapevine nurtured by God, it would grow in order to one day bear much fruit. So it was through the turmoil of men that God would one day end man's turmoil. It is out of the violence of God upon sin that we find sin itself put to death in Christ. Arad was not guiltless, and neither are we. But they died for their persistent wickedness, so that we might live in the persistent righteousness of another. We live through the guiltless death of the promised seed who, comes to, who came to pass through death to redeem a people for himself, not from Egypt, but from sin and death itself. By this we might know at once both the ugliness of sin in the world, in that Arad died for his sin, but also the ugliness of Arad's death for sin, which served our own redemption. For not only did Arad die for himself, but the death he died made room for us in Christ. From our perspective, perhaps this is a scandal, that through his death, Arad made room for the coming of Christ, who suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. We should note that Christ's death was an ugly death, not merely from the shame of the cross, but that it was on behalf of others who deserved to have no benefit from it. Some might say, at least, that Arad died for his own sin, but Christ died for no fault of his own. Some ask, was the death he died truly for the sins of others? Did it truly satisfy the justice of God? Many have objected to this ugliness and have stumbled over their perception of an injustice being done to Christ in order to produce this ugly salvation for his people. Righteousness exchanged for unrighteousness. Some have gone so far as to call this substitutionary death of Jesus divine child abuse. This is a serious objection, but we need to remember that it was God who was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that Christ voluntarily offers himself, and that as God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and desires the repentance of all, he certainly took no pleasure in the death of his son. God did not delight in the sufferings of Christ. Rather, God delighted in his obedience. Truly, it was not Israel, the son, who was vindicated in the victory over Arad, but God himself, as he looked forward through Israel to the vindication of his only begotten son in his victory over sin and death, tasting death for everyone so that we might live in him. We might ask, why has God favored us with his blessing? Why has he offered his Christ to us? In many ways, left to ourselves, we are no better than Arad, but the goal of the crucifixion was not first to find good people and make them better, but first to snatch us from the jaws of hell as a burning branch is snatched from the fire. Whatever perfections we attain to in Christ are not intrinsic. They do not come from us, but they're extrinsic, for they are borrowed from the perfections of another and given to us on loan. So it is by grace that we are saved it is God's decision and his definitive plan and action. It's as Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people of his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, 
The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept his oath, which he swore to his forefathers. The idea here is God did not choose Israel from out of the world based on any merit or strength of their own. Not because Israel loved him and made him promises. Rather, he loved them because of his promise to their fathers. Arad dies so that God could establish this province, this promise, and extend his grace to the entire world. Regarding the grace of God in the fullness of time, Paul the Apostle says the following from Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not from works so that no one may boast. Remember, you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. In this, for us, Arad is both warning and encouragement. Arad died in a war so that the love of God in Christ could be our peace. A peace which would one day be poured out upon all who are far off from God's covenants as the only begotten Son entered the battle in the fullness of time and took up arms to do away with sin and death once for all. So the results of this victory over Arad may have tempted Israel to forget that Arad was not destroyed to inflate Israel's sense of national pride or superiority, but in order for God to make room for the outworking of his promise to raise up Abraham's seed and to bring blessing to the nations. It is possible that the pride and complacency which so often follows some success in the spirit drove Israel now to expect a continuous stream of good things from the hand of God. After all, they had obeyed God, had they not? They were righteous, were they not? Had he not given them the victory in battle? The victory in this battle over the sin and wickedness of Arad had caused Israel to forget the insurrection that had simmered within their own camp since coming out of Egypt. After all, it was not because of their righteousness that the Lord their God was giving them this good land to possess, for they were a stubborn people. He was giving them the land to establish his promise. The intent of the Lord for the people in their 40 years of wandering was not to puff up their pride following their first victory, but was a call to ongoing humility. Deuteronomy 8:3 to 5 instructs Israel to remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Thus you're to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you, just as a man disciplines his son. So having been disciplined as sons for 40 years, Israel the son has finally stepped forward to do the will of the father. But would it last? Picking up our story in verse 4 of Numbers 21, 
Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. Now, we can clearly see the stubborn son is returning. Transitioning from their victory, the newly obedient son meets with adversity at the hands of his older brother. At this point in the story, it's interesting to note that once again, it is Esau who stands in the way of Jacob. Jacob and Esau, the two sons of Isaac, had become the nations of Israel and Edom. Once again, Jacob is seeking the blessing of his father, Edom, or Esau, who who despised his birthright, stands in the way of Jacob, claiming his. Edom, Israel's close brother, has refused Israel's safe passage through their lands, threatening to greet them with the sword should they make the attempt. But God has made a promise to Esau to care for him and make him into a great nation, but but through his line will not come the son of promise. God instructed Israel to honor God's promise to Esau by not offending him, by not stepping foot onto his land. Edom comes out against Israel as had Arad, but Israel honors his brother and his God and follows the Lord to the promise by another route, leaving his brother behind. So far, so good. But to be perfectly fair, the detour proved not to be a good route. Much better would have been the brotherly hills of Edom. However, even if it was not good in terms of safety, provision, ease, or comfort, it was an exceedingly excellent route if you wanted to test or prove the nature of this newly obedient son and to prove his character under trial. It's been famously observed by many preachers and Bible commentators in our own era that T.E. Lawrence, the famous Lawrence of Arabia, once traveled these same lands and wrote of his own passage in his, uh, in his memoirs of his journey, some 3,500 years after Israel had passed through. Allow me to briefly quote Lawrence. The plague of snakes, which has been with us since our first entry into Sirhan today, rose to memorable height and became a terror. In ordinary times, so the Arabs say, snakes were little worse here than elsewhere by the water in the desert, but this year the valley seemed creeping with horned vipers and puff adders, cobras, and black snakes. By night, movement was dangerous. At last, we found it necessary to walk with sticks, beating the bushes each side while we stepped warily through on bare feet. A strange thing was the snake's habit at night of lying beside us, probably for warmth, under or on the blanket. When we learned this, our rising was with infinite care, and first up would search round his fellows with a stick till he could pronounce them unencumbered. Our party of 50 men killed perhaps 20 snakes daily. At last they got so on our nerves that the boldest of us feared to touch the ground. While those who, like myself, had a a shuddering horror of all reptiles, longed that our stay in Sirhan might end. I believe that the people of Israel could relate to Lawrence and his party with their own longing to have this stay in the wilderness end. Um, Verse 5, the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, if you've read the book of Numbers, you're certain to recognize these complaints. They have been said before. Um, It's as if this current generation has gotten themselves drunk on the overflowing cup of bitterness and unbelief stored up for them by their elders over the previous 40 years. And like a bitter and drunken son, they have vomited up all their hateful words upon their father. 
The wilderness generation, while their bodies had largely dropped in the wilderness already, it seems they had successfully passed on their heritage of bitter words to their children. It's possible at this point we might be reminded of some of our own bitter words against God and complaints during the trials of our salvation. But like Israel, we're reminded that we are not saved because we are a righteous people or because we are a strong people. As Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God chooses the lowly and despised things, the weak and foolish things, the things which are nothing to shame the things that think they are something so that no one will boast before him. God does not lead us by the hand to prepare the path for us because we have the heart to walk it ourselves. For we who walk, walk in Christ and are often gathered from that which is weak and foolish and lowly and despised and we really come to him in no other way. So anthropologists at the Smithsonian in Washington estimated that the average lifespan of the ancient Egyptian was about 40 years. And truly, the majority of this second generation out of Egypt had never set foot in Egypt, either as children or adults. And the youngest of the Exodus generation would be pushing 40 themselves, already past their prime. Yet, do you see how even now this people still claim Egypt as their own? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? We hear in this question the accusation that they have been kidnapped. Not only was slavery to be preferred to sonship, the tyranny of Pharaoh was to be preferred to the gospel of God. So, as if to properly educate this unruly son about the rule of Pharaoh, the son is reminded of Pharaoh's rule, hidden under the symbol of the fiery serpent. Verse 6, The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people of Israel died. Now, we don't know what sort of serpents the Lord sent among his people. We don't know if they were cobras or vipers or asps, fiery by temperament, fiery in venom, both, all of the above, or more. But we do know that they were deadly, lethal in minutes or hours, or for the unfortunate, days. We should remember that the cobra with raised head was found everywhere in Egyptian art. It is carved into furniture, sometimes forming legs, arms, or chair backs. Vessels used for liquids by royalty in the upper classes were shaped like rearing cobras. The snake was worn as jewelry, often seen as armbands and always on the front of the circlet or crown of the reigning pharaoh, the kingly symbol of might and protection of Egypt's godlike rulers. The serpent was the sign of the power and rule of the oppressor of the people of God but it is also a sign of affiliation. Remember that the serpent was also the first enemy of God's people. To dwell in Egypt in many ways was to dwell under the rule of the first enemy, to dwell under the rule of the serpent. In delivering his people out of bondage, God was delivering his people from the rule of the serpent and placing them under his own rule. In effect, God was saying, these are not your people, serpent. They are mine. Unfortunately, the people themselves were not yet convinced. The second generation had absorbed much bitterness and fear from the first generation out of Egypt. But had they absorbed any of the promises and signs? Had they not heard that the very first sign God performed through Aaron and Moses was God's serpent swallowing up the serpents of Pharaoh? 
Were they not told that one day a promised seed would come who would crush the head of the ancient enemy forever? It would seem that God's serpent would be needed to save them once again. Picking up in verse 7. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people, and then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that anyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. The very first sign, the swallowing up of Pharaoh's serpents, was a small sign among the signs of the Exodus, but it spoke of great things. It was an announcement that the reign of the serpent over the people of God was at an end. The symbol of the power of Egypt had been broken, swallowed up. But perhaps the serpent's reign and reach are longer than we suppose. After all, as it's been said before, you can take the people out of Egypt, but can you take Egypt out of the people? Salvation through a bronze serpent is truly a bizarre and unexpected turn of events. Many commentators over the years have wondered what sort of mercy the people had actually hoped for from their God. Having been afflicted by the fiery serpents, did they hope for some kind of cooling drink or balm, some medicine they could prepare for themselves to take and ease their burning affliction? Or merely did they hope that the afflictions would just cease and the serpents be removed from them as if nothing had happened? God's solution in the moment was surely both confusing, disappointing, and unexpected. But it's interesting that the text does not record that the serpents were actually removed from the people. This aspect of their prayer was not answered, um, only that any who were bitten by the serpent should look to the bronze serpent, lift it up on the pole, and live. While the serpents are not removed from the people, the form of the serpent is lifted up among them. The serpent is lifted up in order for them to obtain salvation. I'm certain that the people would have preferred another method, possibly one less humiliating. If an image was required to look to for healing, I'm certain they would have preferred an image according to their own choosing, something more user-friendly and approachable, a nice golden calf, perhaps. But God's image was as ugly as the sin which afflicted them, an abhorrent sign for an abhorrent affliction. Now, to be sure, the beauty of Christ is hidden here under much ugliness. The serpent is present to his people, or sorry, Christ is present to his people, but is hidden from sight under the form of the serpent of sin lifted high. In a sense, Christ is hidden under the very image of the enemy of the people. As they look to him lifted high, he becomes their salvation. There is nothing for them to do but to believe God, to look upon their ugly Savior and live. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night with questions. In speaking of the coming salvation in his flesh, Jesus declares to Nicodemus in John 3.14 that just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Martin Luther, in a sermon preached on John 3 way back in 1538, observed that the serpents which bit and poisoned the people had a spiritual significance. Going back to the first serpent, these serpents of number 21 represented for Luther 
sin, death, and an evil conscience, our true first enemy. Returning to the notion of the ugliness of our salvation, Luther turns to the cross. This dead serpent is Christ. I see him hanging on that cross, not beautiful or greatly honored. I see him hanging in disgrace on the cross, considered to be an enemy, like a murderer or a malefactor. Thus, reason must say he is cursed before God. The Jews believed that this was true, and they could only consider him most cursed of all men before God and the world, for they remembered the passage in the law of Moses, he that is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. Perhaps it's fair to say that the glory in swallowing Pharaoh's serpent was not the final word in God's war with sin. The sign performed before Pharaoh was both now and not yet. The reign of Pharaoh's serpent might have been broken, but the reign of sin and death had yet to be swallowed up in victory. Even as Moses set up a serpent of bronze, which looked like the fiery serpents, and provided temporary relief for the people, so also Christ, when lifted up, has the abhorrent form and appearance of a sinner, who has become, for us, salvation. His shame is our honor, his death is our life. He atones for our sin. The living fiery serpent is within us, says Luther, for we are sinners, but Christ in Christ is a dead serpent. So if any are in Christ in this certain, then this serpent is dead to us as well. If then anyone believes that the death of Christ has taken away his sin, he becomes a new man. Now, it might be hard to believe that God will gratuitously take away and forgive all our sins simply by looking to Christ alone. Surely there must be something more we must do than simply look up and believe. Luther wrote the following. Reason argues in this manner. You have sinned, you must atone for your own sin. Then reason invents one good work after another and endeavors to take away sin by good works. But the gospel of Christ is this. If you have fallen in sin, you must look to Christ and Christ must atone for you. If we believe this, we've become one with him and everything that is Christ's becomes ours. This gospel then signifies that our works are nothing and human power is useless. But faith in Christ is all. It has often been said that the cross is the intersection of God's love and justice, and indeed it is. Everybody likes the idea of God's love. But in reality, the love and justice of God in the cross are not without scandal and offense. We started our day in a controversial text with at least two scandals. The scandal of us benefiting from the ugliness of the death of another who died for the ugliness of sin, and the scandal of our own ugliness being displayed on the cross in Jesus' body as the means of our salvation. In our, in our first scandal, it's likely that we were troubled by the notion that God would hand Arad over to Israel, so that Israel, in total devotion, could hand Arad over to God in total destruction. But in this, God made room for the coming of Christ, and did God not, through Arad, hand over his own son in total destruction, so that his son can hand us over to God in total devotion? The end of the holy war against sin is not found in the destruction of Arad, but in the destruction of sin and death in Christ. 
If Israel was vindicated as God's firstborn son in his victory over Arad, how much more was Christ vindicated as the only begotten son in his victory over the grave? Even as Arad's cities and every stronghold would be torn down and no trace would remain, so too is the promise for us that all traces of the strongholds and encampments of sin in us shall be torn down in Christ. In our second scandal, the gospel is hidden under the image of the bronze serpent. If you were bitten and afflicted in your sin, look upon the serpent of sin and live. Moses prepared a bronze serpent to hang on a pole for the people, an ugly savior for an ugly people. Look to your sin, lift it up, and live. While Moses worked in bronze, God worked in flesh. Preparing for us a perfect son to be hung on a pole, our manifold ugliness hung upon him in public display in order that we might bear his manifold perfections before God. God only saves ugly people. He is lifted up for us, and we are called to look to him and live. And so we find that out of scandal and offense, we find great comfort if we have the boldness of faith to look upon Jesus and live. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Lord, there's a statement in the Old Testament which says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Many of your followers would have known this scripture, but you've prepared your followers for your crucifixion by saying, blessed are those who take no offense in me. We ask you, Lord, that we would not be offended by your word or stumble on your cross, and we confess along with the Apostle Paul that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to we who are being saved, it is the power and wisdom of God. God forbid that we should glory in anything save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the word world has been crucified to us and us to the world. Lord Jesus, you have made the journey to die for us with an unutterable love. We remember your suffering, the griefs placed upon you as you bore the ugliness of our sin. You suffered all this for love, willingly, patiently, interceding for a world that did not yet know to look upon you for life. Help us always to look, for you, look to you for all that we need and to point our world to you and not to ourselves. Amen.